This is the Thursday Night Podcast, your source for news, analysis, and all things Georgia State sports. Because every day is Thursday. Hello and welcome to episode 92 of the Thursday Night Podcast. My name is Jordan and I'm joined today by Brady and David. We got a little bit of football to talk about, but first, gentlemen, how are we doing today? We have returned from the land of Cleve. Yes, the Guardians, <coughs> sorry, uh, the Guardians got uh, two, two new baseball fans or whatever you want to say because the, the, uh, they crushed the Angels. Like, oh my God, those games were so like boring, quote unquote. But man, I feel like the Angels didn't try at all. So, but it was fun. Like, you know, Cleveland's a cool city, I guess. Don't tell Joakim Noah I said that. Taylor's not on that pod. He'd be all, he'd, he'd be steering that conversation about just hating on Yoki <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, uh, but I, I mean, I know Brady's been there before, but and for me, like getting picking up a new ballpark and, you know, just my second AL ballpark, it was kind of nice. Like it was, it just, it had like this very different uh, feel to it. And the Friday night game, we like met some guy who's in his like 70s or whatever. And he was just like, you know, cutting it up with us and talking about uh like everything that has to do with Cleveland baseball and you know the different stadiums that he's went to and you know he was a season ticket holder so he's like got like three generations of fan of like family who's a season ticket holder like but behind him and then you know he was mentioning like oh his dad was you know big into it so you know that was kind of fun and then Saturday was a little bit more low key but you know we were there to see Shohei so I I got my money's worth. Yeah, I feel bad because uh, the fan David just talked about, um, we kind of were like a Christmas carol of the ghosts of baseball past because I'm a Braves fan, David's a Cubs fan. And those are the last two teams to beat Cleveland in the World Series. No, that's not the two of the last three because they also lost to Miami. Some cursed times for uh, Cleveland fans. It doesn't seem like it has been a lot of fun losing in three World Series like that in the last 20 years. But... Yeah, I mean, I like I talked about last pod, I had been, so I was kind of aware, you know, where the stadium is, I'd seen a lot, but it really was kind of a new experience. They'd done a lot with it, um, a lot of local integration with, like, local breweries and local food places, which is sort of the trend, the growing trend, is more and more people really want that, like, local buy-in and also just an attempt to not just be generic ballpark food and give you a little bit more, especially because you're paying probably more than you'd think you'd want to, if you're going to get food at the park. Uh, and yeah, I enjoyed that. Shout out Great Lakes Brewing um, and shout out Shohei Otani, even though he didn't really do a lot in the two games. I mean, I will say we've talked about it a little bit and this isn't really a baseball pod or a major league baseball pod, but he's been a phenomenon and you could really feel that there were, you know, it it really mattered on a, a level beyond just baseball because we saw a lot of Asian fans there, and I don't know how many were going to be going otherwise, you know, not for me to say, but it really felt like there was a real arrival of people to see this just awesome baseball player who's having a season that basically has never happened in Major League Baseball. And just, you know, Shohei Otani is literally just, throwing baseballs and hitting baseballs, but what he's doing is doing a lot for the game of baseball internationally. And 
I was glad that even if he only got an RBI single and didn't pitch and didn't hit a 400-foot bomb, that I was able to see this guy in this season because, you know, it's possible that this is like the peak of what we necessarily get from the Shohei Otani experience. You you don't want to think that, and I don't have any reason to think that baseball-wise he's going anywhere, but you got to make sure you catch these moments when they happen because he's definitely going to be the AL MVP this year, and so this... Yeah, you know, this could be the the season you look back on and you can say, you know, I saw this guy. Today we're going to be looking at tight ends and offensive line, and then we're also going to look at Georgia State's November football schedule. So first up, tight ends. We had a piece on the site get published earlier this week, but uh, gentlemen, what thoughts do we have about the tight ends? Tight ends is a it's a position group that we know. The, the guys that are going to be taking most of the snaps, you know, it's Roger Carter, it's Aubrey Payne. There's some young guys that might work in depending on situations or if there's injuries or whatever. But I guess my initial thought, and, you know, this isn't necessarily meant as a criticism, but it felt like there was a gear that wasn't necessarily there with them last year in production that they had in the 2019 season where both Roger and Aubrey, I mean, Aubrey had the touchdown streak of lore where every time he touched the ball, he found the end zone. Uh, but even past that, it just, and I, I want to say without knowing the specifics, it was just a situation where, you know, it was where Dan was more comfortable making those throws and looking for them in the out and passing routes. And maybe quad didn't necessarily have that rhythm or wasn't necessarily going to the tight end reads, or maybe it was just, you know, one of those things. And should also say that, Aubrey Payne had been dealing with some injuries throughout the year, and so I, I think missed some games, and so that was a part of it as well. But I think I say that not as a criticism, but just to say that we know that it can be the best tight end group in the Sun Belt, and it, I, in my opinion, it was that in 2019, and I think that it's very possible with both these guys coming back for their super senior final ride, they can be that again in 2021. I'm... Yeah, I agree with everything that you said there. I want to ask because, you know, we're not necessarily the most schematically minded, but do you think that Dan's ability to run kind of forced players in the box to honor him and his mobility a little bit more? And since you didn't have that same level of... uh the same level of trust that quad was going to run last year, you could kind of sit back and keep some of those tight ends covered. Is that, do you think that kind of leads to why quad didn't hit those reads or didn't look for those reads or. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. I, you know, again, I, it might've just been one of those things and just, you know, that's the way it works. Cause there were definitely times and there were definitely games where Roger Carter was, you know, quad was fighting him. The, the Troy game at least there was the play where, you know, Roger was just wide open and just ran down the sideline, basically untouched on like a wheel route. And he got it to him. Um, And that happened a couple of times. I can't remember the other games where it happened, but I think that I I like that about the scheme because I remember that happening in the coastal game in 2019 as well. Uh, Might've been in 2017 as well in the previous offensive coordinator as well. But, I'm remembering a time where on the the teal field, there was a Georgia state tight end that just ran wide open for like a 20, 30 yard gain. And, you know, that I think those opportunities are there in the scheme and I'm interested to see if we see more of that this year. And then the other part of it with the tight ends, uh, which ties into the second group, we're going to talk about the offensive line is that they're pretty important to the blocking as with any tight ends, 
being run blocking, but specifically with this scheme, we've seen, you know, the tight ends get slide in and be kind of like H backs right behind, you know, a guard getting ready to clear a hole in the run game, or if it's just out on the perimeter or in pass protection occasionally. And, uh, so that's the part that doesn't get talked about as much with them, but they've done a good job with that. And, you know, I think that the tight ends blocking will be an important part to help the offensive line to help the run game get back to maybe what we were seeing from it in 2019 when it was, you know, the best it's been in school history. Yeah, that's definitely something that we should watch for um, because you're right. It's it, it's kind of curious how, especially in 2019, you know, Carter and Payne were so dynamic and, you know, I'll give my own shout out to the ridiculous. What did he start the season? Six touches and six touchdowns or, you know, something crazy like that. Um, But at the same time, though, like there's there's a lot of talent in that group at stretching the field, not just blocking. Um, But it seemed like it was a little bit underutilized. And, you know, maybe that's just how the Panthers wanted to, you know, operate on their offense like they. Coach says they're a run first team and, you know, they've got really good guys on the outside and McCoy in the slot. So it's not like the tight ends are probably always going to be option three passing the ball anyways. And sometimes, you know, your third option is going to have a good crazy season because it's there and sometimes it's not. But I think if quad is going to take that step forward, it's going to be really important for the tight ends to continue to find that separation down the middle, continue to work the outside um, and just find ways to be useful in the passing game. Because I don't think we have any problems with their, you know, run blocking. I can't, can't remember a time last year where Payne and, you know, Carter were missing assignments or getting blown up or something. And, you know, runs were being stopped in, in that respect. So if they continue that work, then, you know, it should be fine. You know, I, I think as we've had this discussion, I've kind of settled in on a possible theory. Um, I think it was a, you know, whether it was the primary or check down, I think it was somewhere where Dan often found is a, you know, security blanket, if you want to say that, where he found the tight ends. Uh, sometimes it was play design, but I think, especially as last season went on, quad security blanket was just throwing it deep to Sam Pickney, and Sam Pickney was coming down with catches. And so, like, I understand it. And, it, you know, it's really easy when you've got a huge target who's one of the best receivers in the conference to just keep doing that. And I think that, especially as the season went on, he also was really finding Cornelius McCoy and being able to rely on him as well. And so I think it's right to say that he had weapons on the outside and and that's where he was looking. Uh, And I think it's, you know, whether it's something where we see more looks for them because he's going through progressions further and finding them or whether, you know, I guess what I'd also say is there's a, a couple of those picks where he may be forced to throw he shouldn't have. Maybe there's a play this year that it's the same situation, and obviously the primary thing is to throw it away instead of throwing a dangerous throw, but maybe he can go through his read one more and find a tight end on like a you know flat route or whatever and take a safe throw there instead of throwing it into coverage. And so that's another way where maybe the the production from the tight ends ticks up, even though that's more of a surviving the drive thing and not necessarily a play where i'm saying there's going to be a huge amount of yardage uh the other thing the the last thing i was gonna say is you know to talk about the other guys 
you know, we know that this is going to be the last year for the two super seniors. And so I'm curious what the threshold is for the underclassmen tight end, you know, Chris Bird or Amon Green or Herman, McC- um, Herman McRae to work their way into getting snaps and how much of it might be situation where the coaches want to make sure that they get some live reps against, you know, first team. So it's not next year situation where you've used your two seniors and now you've got guys who are talented, but don't have much game experience. So I'm wondering what that's going to look like. That's a little under thread that I'm going to be watching as the season goes on to see how much we see those guys start showing up on the field, whether it's, you know, two tight end, even a three tight end set, uh, whatever it might be, if there's any formations that they're the guys that they get to go in and play that. Um, that's what I'm be interested to watch because we really like these two. Carter and Payne have done a lot of good things for Georgia State, but we know that this is the final run for them. And so the the thing that you've got to make sure you do is you've got to make sure that you, you've got the guys ready to take the reins when they're not the ones walking through anymore heading into the huddle. All I can hear you say is you're advocating for Brad Glenn to install some jumbo packages, and I am 100% down for that. I don't know if Brad Glenn listens to this, but anytime anybody installs a jumbo package in college football, I'm down. I'm there. Well, I mean, we established that because, like, Dante Wilson's a running back now. So, like, we were already running some jumbo packages. Like, that's the spring game show that's going to happen. We already had some jumbo packages in the works. So, obviously, we are endorsing that strategy. Jumbo, not even at the goal line, by the way, just everywhere, all across the field. I guess, you know, Jumbo works as a you know, transition talking about the tight ends. It, it all kind of melts together this week because the next position group is the offensive line. It does. Um, and I mean, the offensive line is just such an, you know, you can see when it's going really poorly. You can kind of tell when it's going really well. But even if it's just okay, it might be a little bit hard to notice kind of what's going on. Um, as I have, like, grown as a football fan and known who Quentin Nelson is, the tackle for the Indianapolis Colts, I have, like, gained an appreciation for offensive line play. So if anybody's out there and, you know, loves staunch offensive lines, this is probably the, you know, position group for you. Um, all told, everybody, everybody's coming back on the offensive line for Georgia State. Not only do they have a ton of experience playing together, there's only the only game last year that they didn't play together was the first game. So you have your five starters, Pat Bartlett, Jonathan Bass. Sorry, I should say their positions too. Uh, guard Pat Bartlett, tackle Jonathan Bass, Shamarius Gilmore, another guard, Travis Glover, the other tackle, and then Malik Sumter is the center. The only time they did not play together last year, all of them, was Jonathan Bass didn't start the first game. And he still That's- had snaps. He still played in that game. I've- so they got right. some experience He's- in that game. Exactly. That level of stability is so important because if your communication is off on the offensive line, it's over. You know, you're you're not able to do zone runs, zone, you know, you're not able to pick up zone blitzes and anything like that. And Georgia State likes to, you know, they might be a smash mouth type football team, but, you know, they are still looking to pick up, obviously, zone blitzes. And, you know, they try to do zone runs and things of that nature. Um 
But yeah, it's just such the stability and the talent on the offensive line is so strong that it, it wouldn't surprise me if this is the best unit on the field. Um, when when looking up for this piece, uh, I uh, researched how bad the sack numbers for Georgia State were like, you know, five, six, seven years ago. Um, and you know, so they had 12 sacks. They gave up 12 sacks last year. And um it's about it's a sack a game, which you know, if you're a, good, a great team, you want to be giving up less than that. But like there were there were a, the App State game and the Coastal game, Quad got sacked three times in both of those games, so that you know there were six. Um, but for the most part, the offensive line had a good year, right? Georgia State, like six seven years ago, that was like a thirty sack given up team. That's crazy. Like if you if you remember that and just think about okay, they're giving up around 12, 15 nowadays. The, like the the improvement only on the offensive line has been amazing. And so you really can give them the benefit of the doubt like yes, the quarterback is going to be protected. And you know, I, I know obviously Dan Ellington was a very mobile guy. He could, you know, bounce outside and you know not take a sack because he's gaining a yard or getting back to the line of scrimmage or you know and quad has been working on that aspect of his game as well but truthfully just watching the games you can see that the offensive line is so much better at buying a quarterback an extra second to throw the ball away or you know find a receiver you know and, and a lot of georgia state's off the like passing game is timing routes you know not you know i don't say that as a bad thing it's it's college football but you know when you give if you can give your quarterback that fifth second instead of just that fourth second it makes all the difference in the world yeah, I mean, as we talk about, Coach Elliott has an offensive line coaching background. It's sort of the unit of all of them that he... Yeah, I think that the expectation is, with the offensive line, not only to be the best Georgia State position group, but I think that they want to be and believe they can be and can be the best offensive line unit in this conference. And I think that... It's the mentality. I think it's also like you talk about the experience of playing together. And yeah, I, I would say the sack numbers, the the one thing is that I think that running the ball a lot more is helping that because there were some games where Georgia State was getting uh, racking up a bunch of sacks allowed because they were throwing a ton and they weren't running the ball very much because uh, the, the Trent Miles regime, it was kind of the book on them was just lots and lots of passing. And uh, I think that it would have been easy to look at that situation when Coach Elliott came in and not necessarily go full bore into like, I know an offensive, I know I'm an offensive line guy, but this is a situation where there's not a lot of depth and not a lot of run blocking experience. But he kind of showed up and said, "This is what we're gonna do," and you saw it immediately with the recruiting class he put in his first recruiting class, even before he really had a whole year to do it. And you saw it with him turning a Trent Miles recruit and Shamiris Gilmore into his starting left guard from day one. And that's what he's continued to be his entire time at Georgia State, ever present, and uh, continuing to have his guys develop. And so it's a offensive line now that's melded in what Coach Elliott wants it to be. And the results have been there. And now it's another year where they've got some talented receivers that if they just continue to pass block like they have been and continue to create some holes in the run game. 
there's talent on the roster that they can fill. I mean, it's going to be a thing where, as always, the quarterback gets the glory, the running back gets the glory, the wide receiver gets the glory, even the tight end occasionally gets the glory, and the offensive line doesn't as much, but everyone around that offense knows the work that those guys do, and so it's just, you know, I feel in the range of being homerish by talking about possibly both of these units being the best in the Sun Belt, but I mean, on talent and on experience and everything, I don't think it's a stretch, and if we're in a situation where that's what is happening, if we've got the offensive line and the tight end playing as the best in the conference or up in the upper echelon of the conference, then a lot of good is going to happen with this Georgia State offense. It really does have the potential to be very good. Uh, I mean, they're, we're getting to the end of our pieces and we haven't talked about the skill position players yet, but they are returning so much from an already very good offense that it's going to be really, unless there is some huge regression that we are not accounting for, it does have the potential to be a very good offense again this year. And I just to say, I mean, obviously the experience is the big thing to single out as a positive, but it's also just a really insanely deep position group that keeps adding talented guys every cycle. And so, Obviously, you want all of these five to play every game, every snap together, because that's the biggest important factor in offensive line is just that cohesion. But it really is, you know, two or three teams deep of guys where I don't think that they'd want to necessarily have to start a guy who isn't one of those five. But it's been an emphasis in every recruiting cycle, and you can tell, and it's a really deep group to the point where there's really running out of spots and you've got guys that are you know transferring out of it because there's only so many spots in the depth chart that you can get to. And, you know, that's a good place you want to be in where the competition is so rife and the room is so deep that you've got all these guys you can lean on because I mean, there were times where Georgia state basically had like a right tackle or two right tackles and times where guys were, you know, moving around positions to where, you know, you had a, right tackle move to left guard in a certain situation because of an injury. And, you know, this situation, maybe they move it around depending on where the injury is, but you could really have a plug and play guy as a backup where instead of having to mismatch and move someone out of their comfortable starting position. But uh, yeah, uh, you know, Shamarius and Malik are the guys that have been sort of the standouts among it, but I'm really interested to see what, what, what we see from the tackles this year. Yeah, speak, you know, speaking to the depth, like you're right. Like, you know, we talk about Shamarius and Malik, like those are the all-conference selections among them. But, you know, if you went into the season with uh, Desvelado, Alexandre, Avery Reese, and Luis Cristobal as your, you know, your, you plug those guys into the two that, are, you know, in place of three guys that are actually on the line, you'd fine with that you know you might not have the top flight talent and obviously your depth would be certainly lacking but this is how you build a program this is how you build you know those reserves year over year yeah i mean it's a situation where it's not even just about this year but that's also just about again like the tight ends you know that you're gonna lose some guys after this year on the offensive line and the way that you stem regression and the way that programs like an app state continue their success is that they're able to immediately 
have their starting offensive line set for the next year and not miss a step because those guys are ready to step up. And so that as you're looking for Georgia State to be this perennially winning team, it's stuff like that. It's stuff like where the offensive line can lose a couple seniors and you've got guys ready to slide right in and help the team win. And so I'm, you know, not looking forward to necessarily a situation where the offensive line depth has to get tested because you want to keep healthy, but it is probably as good as it's been. And it's a real hallmark of the roster building that coach Elliott and company have been able to do since coming to Atlanta. All right, so we'll be looking to see both of those groups in action as the season begins soon. But uh, one more thing for this week's episode, we've got the November games to talk about. So as far as November games go, uh, the first week, November 4th, Thursday night on Big Boy ESPN, Panthers head to Lafayette, Louisiana to face the Ragin' Cajuns. And then on Saturday the 13th, head to Conway, South Carolina to face Coastal Carolina. And then are back at home for a two-game stand to close out the regular season versus Arkansas State on November 20th at Center Park Stadium and versus Troy on November 27th. Tough slate of games, gentlemen. Especially because, you know, this this month is in a vacuum for the purpose of this segment, but putting this schedule into the context of the fuller schedule... Georgia State's playing on that last Saturday in October. They don't have a full week off before that game where they travel to Louisiana. And so, you know, for me, I think Louisiana's a good team. It's a team that Georgia State still hasn't beaten in their short history. Uh, it's a team that Georgia State took to overtime in 2020. So you'd think they're on a decently level footing. It's not a team that Louisiana is going to look at and think, oh, we can beat them. Like they know that Georgia State's going to give them a good test. Uh, as I'm looking I, at this game, I want to correct you really, really quickly. It was Louisiana who forced that overtime. Like Georgia State had that game and was the better team for the majority of that game, and it took Levi Lewis turning it up in the fourth quarter to finally force that team to take it to overtime. Sorry to interrupt you, though. Yeah, I mean it's true, and I think that was the first sign that you know, even in a loss, we saw that Georgia State team go out there and fight and. In years past where there's been a deflating loss and a bad performance, maybe in the season opener after a bowl appearance where you go, well, I thought that we had a chance to keep putting it together, you know, thinking of 2016 or even 2018. Uh, although you're playing Kennesaw, so there wasn't a whole lot you could do to win the perception game when you're playing an FCS team and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But as far as this game, in the context of the schedule, I've currently, I've got it as a loss, but. I just think that it's really going to be tough. If Georgia State can win both of those road games in the stretch of five days, that will be a huge achievement that will stand out as the success of the schedule, independent of how the season ends up, because it's going to be really tough to win two road games like that in the stretch of less than a week. And especially one's the rivalry factor. The other one's just the best team in the West and a team that has been that perennial team since Billy Napier has been here, basically. Yeah, it certainly is going to be a challenge. Um, I think if they play well, you'll live with that regardless of the result. Um, and there, you know, it is possible to play well and get blown out. We've talked about, you know, the, our expectations for the Auburn game and the UNC game, but this is a Sunbelt team. This isn't, you know, one of the bigger 
power five teams. So this Georgia state should, if they don't play them close, they should at least play well because they're on a much more even footing. Um, and this is a game where if you have a good quarterback and you know, he's having his average day to a good day, if he's playing like himself, anything is possible. And so, you know, as long as quad can let it fly and you know, you could, you roll the dice, you see what happens. It's yeah, similar sort of story with the the coastal game uh, in that it's a good team. We know they were good last year. They're really good last year. Eleven win team. Uh, it's a weird series because the the home team has never won, and this year coastal is the home team. And you know, at this point, I think it would be fair to say coastal will be the favorite going into this game. Not that that matters much of anything as we sit here in August talking about a game in November. All the context is going to change by that point. We won't really know until we get to that point. But it's it's one where I kind of went back and forth on these two road games. And I, I landed on a loss in my book at this point for Louisiana just because of the way that the schedule lines up. And I think you can kind of go the other way and say that you're going to get a little bit more time off to prepare for Coastal. And I think there's a little bit to be said about the mojo of the home team never winning, even though it's obviously entirely fake and doesn't matter at all. And so for my money, I think that Georgia state's able to keep that going, get a big win. I think getting a road win like this against a team that might be the conference favorite, you know, the East favorite at that point could be a lot, do a lot for Georgia state, especially at this point, it might be the situation where the winner takes the lead in the East based on how the season we have playing out, because uh, that would be Georgia State's seventh win at that point, uh, seven and three, at least uh, on my record. And yeah, I mean, those are the type of games I think you sort of get ready to play college football for. Should be a fun one up on the teal field. It's interesting because that's kind of the softer part of coastal schedule. Um, after October 20th, they host Troy. Then they go to Georgia Southern and then they host Georgia state and Texas state in back-to-back weeks. And then they have to go to uh, mobile and face South Alabama, you know, so you could say if they can get through Arkansas state app and Troy, like, you know, it's smooth sailing from there. Um, I don't want to, I'm not going to label it a trap game. I think the pressure is still on Georgia State. But like we've seen this before. We've seen a team who is quote unquote the favorite, you know, heading into the home stretch. Um, I just said I wasn't going to call it a trap game and I'm describing everything that goes into trap games. Um, but I, part of why I don't want to call it a trap game is because Georgia State is probably a good team. Like we, you know, we've, I agree with you that they're probably going to lose to Louisiana. And, you know, let's set aside the home team hasn't lost in the series. I still think that Georgia State matches up really well with Coastal. Yes, they played head-to-head last year and kind of just got punched in the mouth. I think they just weren't, I don't want to say they weren't prepared, but I just, I just think it was like the one percentile of that game. They weren't in sync. No one was in sync. Yes, I, right. And I, and I think it was more so just when they got down by like three scores, it was this team is also good. Like we're, it's just going to be one of those types of days. But if they played that game again, even before that game happened and since the trajectory of, you know, what both of those teams did after that game, it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, you ran some numbers or whatever, played that game again, and it was much closer. It really wouldn't surprise me. Um, 
especially if Georgia State is coming off of a victory versus App and, you know, you beat Georgia Southern and then finally drop a conference game to Louisiana, you're solidifying yourself as one of the better teams in the conference. So I still think they can go to Myrtle Beach and win, a place that they haven't lost yet, you know. Like, that, that stuff kind of matters. They travel really well. I, yeah, I mean, leaving a final coda with these two road games, I think it is statistically probably the likely thing just because winning on the road, the percentages with that. The 0-2 on this stretch is probably, I won't say likely, but probably the plurality of outcomes would be that just because of how the numbers play out. And that's just the reality, even when you don't even factor in that Georgia State's going to be coming in on a off another road game right before this stretch without even a week of prep. Uh, I think it's going to be the part of the schedule that tests them the most. I think that's obvious. I think that's the first thing that we said when we saw the schedule come out earlier in the spring. Um, but I'm really interested to see how they handle the situation because whether the season is playing out record-wise like we're thinking or whether whether it's a situation where they're still looking to get bowl eligible and they need to find some wins, whatever situation they're at, it's going to be, well, two or three wins here in this three-game road stretch is going to be the difference between bowl eligible or going to be the difference between fighting for the East Division crown. Or there's, It's going to be a swing segment of the schedule. And so with that challenge facing them, I'm really interested to see how they handle it. It's going to tell us a lot about what goals Georgia State is going to be able to achieve because the way this schedule shakes out before, yeah, I, unless everything goes horrendously bad, I don't know that you're going to be in a situation where it's all of your goals are, are on trajectory, you know, whether it's being undefeated in conference or being literally undefeated. And I also don't know if the schedule lines up to where everything could go all the way wrong, all the way, you know, and so this is really the stretch where after these three games, wherever Georgia State is before these three road games, counting the Georgia Southern game, afterwards we're really going to see this is where the season lands and this is you know what, what we had as a success or a failure in our minds before. We'll have a much better answer as to did they meet that goal. And I hope people don't think that we're just like trying to say, oh, they're just going to beat everybody and, you know, they're just going to be so good. And, you know, like, yes, everybody going into a season has those aspirations. And, you know, you learn very quickly who will keep those aspirations and who won't. But I, you know, I think we have to be realistic at, you know, what is coming back for Georgia State, what's coming back for other teams, and kind of just play the numbers game based on the information that we had last year. You know, like Coastal Carolina is probably a good team. They still have Grayson McCall. You know, he's probably going to have if, if we're expecting quad to take that step forward. I think McCall will also be a better player this year. Um, but I also know that Coastal, they lost things that Georgia State didn't lose, you know, both on some of their skill position players on offense and, you know, some of the guys who took big leap forwards on defense. Um, you know, and I think that factors in a little bit more than, and I also want to say, I don't know what Coastal is going to be because yes, they were really good last year. And yes, you could kind of see the trajectory, but they went from like five wins and a lot of losses in very close games 
to like the best team in the conference. You know, that sort of jump doesn't really just happen. Um, and then they also won a lot of one possession games later on in the year. You know, there were some people saying they got lucky and, you know, we could like talk about that later because ultimately if you're winning one possession games, you're still winning. Um, but I don't know, you know, maybe they lo- they won some coin flips last year and this year, you know, the luck doesn't favor them that well. Yeah, I mean, it. Yeah, at this point last year, we weren't saying Coastal is going to be this juggernaut. And so, like you say, everything happens fast. Kind of got to adjust on the fly. But I, I mean, I agree. I, yeah, we haven't done the last two games yet. But as of now, I've got Georgia State on seven and three, already getting bowl eligible in October. And yeah, obviously, we're Georgia State pod. There's the thought that you know we're just homer 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 and you know whatever you can't always remove your biases but this is sort of what georgia state needs to get to where fans and podcasts and sites who cover it alike can look at it and say i think a nine win season is possible and i think that winning the east is possible i mean we might look back at this and just go oh we got this horribly wrong but i don't think that the numbers suggest that it is i don't think it's a totally unbelievable outcome and this is sort of where you want to get you want to get to the point where this is the expectation and if we're talking about it after and i put down george state as nine win season and it doesn't happen you can look at it and say just really could have should have happened and so georgia state i think has to shed a little bit as just a collective of some of the Yes, Georgia State was a really bad team who lost a lot of games in the middle of last decade, and it's really not been that way the last few years. And so, and it's and there's reasons to see that it's getting better. And so, it's okay to have expectations. Is what I'm saying. I mean, we have those expectations for men's basketball because of the success they've had. And I think that if you look at the two programs, I don't think that similar expectations translated to football are unreasonable because it's been a bowl team three of the four years under Coach Elliott. Litter, look at the last, look at the talent that's coming back and look at the potential in the guy who is supposed to be leading this team. If I know it's impossible to do this, but if you were to extrapolate that to men's basketball for the Panthers, we would be talking about, okay, did they lose two or one conference game and how many games in the NCAA tournament did they win? You know, you can't necessarily do that, but like, you're right. Like we, it's getting to the point where the, the foundation is being built and has been built or whatever. And on paper, this is a team that can win nine games. You know, it's, it's not far. Like uh, we didn't talk about Arkansas state or Troy, uh, but like, I have those as wins. Like, I know a lot of people are buying back into Troy and, you know, Arkansas State has an offense that's going to throw 60 times a game and get like 500 yards and not play defense. But those are home games. Those are the last games of the season. Even if the road trip goes bad, I still think that Georgia State wins those just based on their own talent and how they've been able to play at home. Like, that's those are games you got to have. Maybe not in the Texas State vein, but like you gotta you gotta win those winnable games at home. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is an unpopular opinion, 
among the Sunbelt universe. I thought Butch Jones was a good mid-major coach before he went to Tennessee. He even you know did some things okay to start Tennessee, and then it all just went horribly wrong, and he turned himself into a meme with the Champions of Life stuff and the trash can. But I didn't think this was a bad hire for Arkansas State. We don't really know what they're going to look like, uh, but I, th- I thought that they got a guy who's had experience winning at this level of college football, um, and they've got some talent coming back. I mean, we their offense is maybe going to be a little bit different under a new offensive scheme, but it's still going to have a, a quarterback like Lane Hatcher who just totes it everywhere and fires it around. But you're right. I, I think you, you just have to look at this, and I also have them as both wins, and part of it's just finishing off the 6-0 and at home thing. I think that's important. I think continuing to stack up home wins as a program and build more of that because that maybe was lacking in years past is an important thing, but you look at Arkansas State, it's going to be a team we know more about when we get there, but it's a, I think it's going to be a team a little bit in flux. And Troy, I I think that they've also got talent, obviously, and um, they've had guys come back. Uh, they have have probably the best defensive player in the conference, or one of them in Carlton Marshall, uh, linebacker for them who's really good. And... They've played Georgia State tough. They did it last year. Georgia State kind of stole that one um, with a little bit of added anxiety oh that you need to give themselves. But you know, what a Troy bad was, end of game sequence. Troy was up in that game. They got two defensive touchdowns, and uh, they really stole the momentum, and it was a real struggle for Georgia State to get it back. This time's at home. It's senior day, all the festivities, and... You know, if Georgia State's at that position where they're eight and three and maybe playing for whether it's a tie, you know, share of the East Crown or outright or whatever, even just the fact that it would be two wins better than any final result for Georgia State, you're in that situation. You just got to say, got to win this game. And like you, it's different than the got to win this game we were talking about in the October series of games because I think Troy's good. I think Arkansas State's good, but. It's all part of the cohesive idea for me that this is a season where you've got a couple of tough stretches, you've got some challenging teams on the schedule, and yet, with all you've got coming back, if you really want to say to the college football universe that Georgia State is this team and is good, you've got to get past that seven-win threshold, you've got to beat a team like App State you haven't beat, or beat Louisiana who you haven't beat, or beat Coastal who was the East Division champion last year, and and rack up some wins that wow people. Or at least get to the point where those wins don't wow people, you know? You want to get to the point where, yeah, Georgia State beats those teams. And that hasn't been the case, and Georgia State hasn't been able to put the whole puzzle together in one season, uh, even though the 2019 was a bit of bad luck with Dan's injury. I You've got to do that, and... I just think that this has got to be the year. I think it's going to be an important year where Georgia State can really take a step forward or not. And that alone could be a situation that you look at with some disappointment because this, you really, the, the, the program needs that next level of good season to really establish itself. Yeah, I agree. 
We're just about out of time for this week, but I did want to give you a little bit of a look at what's happening around the world of Georgia State sports. In the last week since we released a podcast, there were a number of games in soccer and volleyball. Volleyball specifically opened their season with an exhibition at Chattanooga, winning 5-0. Men's soccer played Clemson in an exhibition in Atlanta, tied 0-0. Women's soccer went at Chattanooga, won 1-0, and uh, tonight, as of the release of this podcast, uh, men's soccer is playing North Florida at the GSU Soccer Complex, and women's soccer is playing UGA in Athens, and that game will be on SEC Network+. Plus. Uh, Friday and Saturday, volleyball is going to be very, very busy on Decatur Street with a slate of games in the GSU Invitational, welcoming a couple of other schools to town as well. And then on Sunday, women's soccer is playing Davidson at the GSU Soccer Complex, and men's soccer is going to be playing at Mercer in Macon. But we'll keep you abreast of all the other developments in athletics as they come available. And we're looking forward to the uh, approaching football season as well. Thank you, as always, for listening. And we will catch you in the next episode. Bye-bye. The Thursday Night Podcast is a production of ThursdayNight.com, the independent source of choice for all things Georgia State sports. This podcast and all included sounds are exclusive property of and copyright 2019 Jordan Crawford Enterprises, LLC, on behalf of ThursdayNight.com, unless otherwise specified. The podcast is produced by Programming Director Brady Weiler and Technical Director Jordan Crawford, with assistance from co-hosts Taylor Dynan and David Salmon. You can find the podcast on SoundCloud, as well as podcast aggregators like Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcast. To submit questions and comments, or to request information on advertising and corporate partnerships, contact the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as at Thursday Night or via email at thursdaynight at gmail.com.